0: you all for being here with us in worship today. As I mentioned earlier, we are uh, in the middle of a message series, a six-part message series. That's awfully long. Six-part message series, and this series is called Unoffendable, and it is based on a book by Brent Hansen called Unoffendable. And our goal in this series is to become... Hey, that's fantastic. By week six, you'll be shouting that out. That's our goal in this series. We want to become unoffendable, especially those of us who are Christians. If you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, here's what's up. We have been called to share the gospel with other people, to tell the story of Jesus with other people. We have been called to love other people. And it's really difficult, if not impossible, to share the truth of Jesus with people, to share the love of Jesus with people if we're too busy being offended by those people. And so, we've been doing this series in an effort to become unoffendable. Going through this series in part one, we talked about this myth of righteous anger, this idea that exists in Christian culture, but also in the world, this idea that there are certain things we're supposed to be angry about. But if we look to the Bible, we realize that whenever anger is talked about, whenever anger is preached about or discussed, anger is always a bad thing. And yes, There is such a thing as righteous anger, but that belongs to God and not to you and not to me. Our anger is a liability. It makes us weak, not strong. It impedes our logic. It doesn't make us more level-headed. It's a bad thing. And so if there is such a thing as righteous anger, it belongs to God, not to us. In part two of our series, some of you remember this, we talked about what people are like. And isn't this a funny situation? You know, again, especially for those of us who are Christians, we have this belief that people are not basically good, you know, despite what we want to believe about ourselves, despite the good that we're capable of, we believe that people are not basically good. In fact, we need a Savior. We need a Savior because we're not capable of saving ourselves, and so we know that people are not basically good, and yet here we are getting shocked when people act not good. Why do we do that, right? I can't believe he said that. I can't believe she did that. Why can't you believe it? People act like people. Sinners act like sinners. And so we shouldn't be shocked when people make mistakes. We shouldn't be shocked when people mess up and say terrible things and do lousy things. We should be shocked when they don't. We should be shocked when people are generous and sacrificial and selfless. We shouldn't be surprised that people don't act like Jesus. We should be surprised when they do. Part three of this series, we talked about this correlation, and maybe it's not an obvious thing, but there's this correlation between allowing ourselves to be overwhelmed with offense and not trusting in God. Because there's something that exists inside of each one of us, a desire for justice. Now, our concept of justice is is corrupted by our human nature, but we all want to see justice take place. We want to see the bad guys punished and the good guys win, right? Right, Superman? We want to see the bad guys punished and the good guys win. Yes, that's what we want to see. But in this life, at least in the short term, what we see is people getting away with stuff, we see acts of injustice. We see people doing wrong and getting away with it. And in those moments, we want to pick up that powdered wig and put it on. And we want to pick up that gavel. And we want to be the judge over people. If we just, if we just trust God to be the judge. Let, let God do his job. Let God be the judge. If we take that burden off ourselves and give it back to God, that alleviates our being offended. It just begins to melt away. and So we can trust God to be the judge. He's better at it than we are. We can trust God to be the judge. Last week, we talked about what we should actually do about injustice, and there's another myth that we addressed last week. This idea that expressing outrage over injustice is the same thing as doing something about injustice. Well, it's not, right? Expressing outrage is not the same as actually doing something, and I'm all for freedom of expression and freedom of speech, and I'm a, a big believer in the power of words and the power of communication, and you can certainly make your opinions known, absolutely, but don't confuse expressing outrage with taking action. Don't confuse the two. So last week I shared this corny little saying with you. I, think, I don't think I made this up. I think I heard this from somewhere. This corny little idea that it's better to shine a little light than to shout, Into the darkness. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, hop on social media and you see a lot of people shouting into the darkness. Why? Let's just shine a little light. Shine a little light instead. And today we're going to begin to discuss how we can put these things into practice. At this point in the message series, I feel like it's important to re-clarify something. You know, I keep saying our goal is to become unoffendable and for us to be um, not led into this temptation to give in to our anger, give in to our outrage. Here's what we need to acknowledge, that as we go through life, we will find ourselves getting angry and offended and outraged. And what this series is about is identifying the fact that we are weak and we can become angry and offended and outraged. And when we see ourselves, when we catch ourselves doing that, it's our job to let go of that anger and that outrage and that being offended. It's going to happen to you, okay? So I want to clarify this whole becoming unoffendable thing. This is not a fake it till you make it situation, yes? You know what I'm talking about? There's some things in life where you can fake it until you make it, but there's no such thing as pretending to be unoffendable, yes? You know what I mean, right? Like, well, you know, I know I'm not supposed to be offendable, so I'm going to pretend that doesn't offend me. No, 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 no. That's that's not what we do, When we catch ourselves feeling angry, irritated, outraged, offended, we catch that and we have to acknowledge this is not good. Nothing good comes from my being offended. A man's anger, a person's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. That's what James tells us. And Paul tells us that, yeah, you're going to get angry, but let go of it before the sun goes down. So keep that in mind. You're only human. We're only human. We're going to get offended. But when we find ourselves, when we catch ourselves getting offended, we need to grab onto it, identify it, and let go of it. See, I'm not entitled to this. This is, doing, this is serving me. This is not serving me. This is not doing anybody any good, being all offended or angry or worked up. Not a fake it till you make it situation. I don't know if you've experienced this, um, but some of you have reached out over the past few weeks here And you've told me your stories about uh, getting offended recently, yes? Uh, Some of you have been wrestling with this very issue that we're talking about in church. We've been talking about it for the past four weeks. And some of you have sent me your emails. uh, And and some of you have texted telling me your stories and how you are being tested in this very issue. And um, if that's you, if I'm describing you, uh, that's me also. I feel like I am being tested in this very issue. Here we are talking about... I'm not letting ourselves be overwhelmed by anger and not getting angry over things and letting go of our anger. And I'm finding myself very tempted to give in to offense and anger. In fact, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with Brett, our worship leader, and I was kind of just wondering aloud about what God is doing in, in my heart and in my life and what God is doing in the midst of our congregation and wondering is God testing me? Is this what's happening? Am I being put to the test? I'm mean, i standing up here talking to all you people about we shouldn't let ourselves get offended, and here I am finding myself in all these situations where I'm tempted to give in to offense. Am I being tested? Or am I just more aware of how prevalent this issue is in my heart and in our community? Now, I don't know the answer to that question, but I suspect maybe both. Are you finding this to be the case as you go through life? As you're more aware of just how big this issue is, are you seeing people, are you catching yourself become offended? Are you realizing how often this happens to you and to other people? I'm going to tell you a story. This happened, I think it was Monday, this past Monday. So uh, I take our youngest, I take our, our daughter Alana to, to kindergarten in the mornings. And so I'm driving to the kindergarten academy. I throw all those little fun streets in, in, in Prospect Park, you know, the streets I'm talking about where it's one at a time. There's parking on both sides, one at a time. You kind of Jockey for a spot, to just make your way down the lane. And during drop-off time, it is chaos. Yes, it's chaos. And there's usually something that happens. I mean, it's such a short trip, but there's usually something that happens during that short trip that triggers my anger. And so it was Monday, and we're driving to school, and we're going down one of these roads, and Alana's in the back seat, and somebody ahead of me makes a left turn right where I'm going to go. They make a left turn ahead of me, and they park their car on the street, and then they fling their door wide open, yes? Fling, they don't look back, they just fling their door wide open. What is with people who do that? Don't you park your car and then check, is it safe, is it safe, and then you kind of sneak out and get to the curb as soon as you can? Why do people just fling their door open? This person flings their door open and doesn't get out, and this lady's just in her car, looking around at her stuff, yeah, they're okay. Do I got my phone. Do I have my keys. I'm thinking, what are you doing? No one can drive on this road now because you need to open your door as far as it can go out. What is happening? And so, out loud, I say, "What is this person doing? Why would somebody open their door that wide?" And from the back seat, I hear my six-year-old say, "Don't be surprised when people act like people." <laughs> She's right. Don't be surprised when people act like people. She's right. People do things—little things, big things, small things—do things that bother us. And in moments like that, I mean that specific incident, it would be easy for me to cast that off. Well, this isn't—you know—this is just a small thing. You know, this doesn't really count as getting offended. This doesn't count as an offense, but doesn't it? Isn't that what I experienced in that moment where I was inconvenienced by, what, four seconds, five seconds? Isn't that what I was experiencing, offense? And I think all of us can fall into this temptation. We could say, you know what, there are some people, you know, there are behaviors that annoy me, there are things people do that I don't like, but that doesn't count as being offended. We could fall into that trap. We could say, well, listen, I'm not offended in this situation, I'm just annoyed. I'm not offended by that person, I just don't like what they're doing. Or, I'm not offended by that person, I just don't like that person. There's an attitude that I have encountered in church life within Christianity, and maybe you've encountered this attitude too, this attitude where it seems like a lot of us Christians believe that we can not like people, but still love them. Do you know the type of thing I'm talking about? So it's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, you've got this neighbor, right? Oh, I've got this neighbor over here, and I'm a Christian person, and my neighbor's not a Christian person. And my worldview is based on the Bible because I'm a Christian person, and my neighbor's not a Christian person. And they have such a radically different worldview. And I know their view of life is different. I know their priorities are going to be different from mine because they're not a Christian, and I am a Christian. I know, but I I just don't like that person, right? Because they're so different from me. And what they're out there pursuing is so different from what I'm pursuing. And what they value is so different from what I value. I just don't like that person. I mean, I love them because Jesus says I have to, right? Because Jesus says we have to love other people. I just don't like that person. I love them, but I just don't like them. You know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced this? I've got this coworker. I've got, you know, listen, I'm a Christian person. I believe in the Bible. I, I base my life around what Scripture said. I pursue the things that Jesus tells us to pursue. And no, I'm not perfect, but that's who I am, and that's what I'm about. But I've got this coworker, and oh, my goodness gracious, I can't stand him. The things that he says, and he's got some wild ideas about sexuality. Goodness gracious. He's living with his girlfriend. And I know that's what people do, but they're playing house, and they're living in sin. And I'm not trying to judge. I just don't like him. I mean, I love him because Jesus says to, but I just don't like this person. I have this friend on social media, huh, friend on social media, and I'm this, this political party, and he's that political party, goodness gracious. And the stuff, my goodness, I don't know where he comes up with this stuff. The stuff that he posts and these articles that he's citing and sharing these things, I have no idea where he's come up with these crazy ideas, I can't stand him. I mean, I, I love him because Jesus says I have to love him. But I just don't like him. Here's some questions for us to consider. Is this you? Is this, am I describing you? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> some questions for us to consider. When we, when we say these things, well, I just don't like that person Isn't that the same thing as as being offended by them? Well, what does it mean to not like? What's the difference between not liking somebody and being offended by them? Is there a difference? Uh, Is there? I mean, chew on that. I'm not sure that there's a difference. I mean, I think this is exactly the type of behavior, the type of thing that we're talking about. Here we are. It's like, well, why are we giving ourselves permission to, to not like these things that people do, or or to be so bold as to say, I don't like that person, but I know I have to love them. Here's my next question. Can you love someone without liking them? You want to say yes, but really, really, think about it. Can you love someone without liking them? Christians, let me talk to you. Can you love somebody the way that Jesus taught you to love somebody without liking that somebody? I wonder. If we're going to answer that question first, we need to take a look and see how it is that Jesus teaches us to love other people. Take a look at that passage that's in your bulletin. Just a couple of verses. Let me give you a little bit of context where we are Gospel of John. And so in the timeline, we are at the Last Supper. And so less from 24 hours from this point where Jesus speaks these words, he's going to be crucified. That's where we are. And during the Last Supper, Jesus is a lot more candid with his disciples. In fact, they, they recognize that. They acknowledge, how hey, you're being a lot more clear. Jesus had spoken in parables. Jesus had used figurative language, and now he's really being very clear about what's about to happen. And he says to them, a new command I give you, love one another. And I read this sentence and I think, what are you talking about, Jesus? A new command? There's nothing new about this command. I mean, Jesus has preached on this topic many times up to this point, yes? This is the night before he's going to be crucified. He's been preaching about loving one another for a long time, loving your neighbor, loving your enemies, Loving those who persecute you. Treating other people the way you want to be treated, which is to love them. Yes, he's been preaching about this for a long time. And before Jesus, you go back to the Old Testament, we were taught to love back then too. So all throughout history, God has been teaching us to love other people, to love one another. And I'm saying, Jesus, are you joking right now? Because there's nothing new about this command. Let's continue on. He says, a new command... I give you, love one another as I have loved you. It's worth noting that in the original texts, right, the original manuscripts of the scriptures, um, there's no punctuation, yes? You know what I'm talking about? There's no periods, there's no commas, none of that. We added that in after the fact. I don't think there should be a period there. I think it should say, a new command, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. That's what makes this new is Jesus is telling us, he's showing us just how we are to love other people. Jesus is saying you need to love other people, you need to love one another the way that I have taught you, the way that I have showed you, the way that I have demonstrated what love looks like. Love other people the way I love you. Not the way that you want to define love, not the way that the world defines love, but the way I have defined love for you. Love other people as I have loved You. How did Jesus love us? How did Jesus love us? You know, John, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, this biography of Jesus, he tells us that Jesus was with God in the very beginning. Before the beginning of creation as we know it, Jesus was there. In fact, nothing has been made in this universe that wasn't made through Jesus. He was there and instrumental in the creation of all things. Jesus was there from the beginning, and then he empties himself of his high status, of his glory, of his royal standing. He empties himself of all that to be born among us. A little tiny baby in a barn, laying down, not on a fancy bed, right? Not a silly posturpedic, but some hay, yes? <laughs> I mean, the sacrifice of giving up, giving up your glory to go down with these people, and he knows exactly what we're like. How wicked we are, how jealous and selfish. Like, no, I'm, I'm going down there to be one of them. He gives all that up. And I know, I, uh, listen, if we consider the sacrifice of Jesus, maybe you don't want to start there, but that's where you have to start. Think of what he's done for us. Would you do that? If you had it made in the shade, would you give up all of that to go live among us? And so he leaves glory. And then once he's here, what does he do? He tells people the truth about God, about God's love, and he endures a massive amount of pushback and ridicule, and he's torn down by the religious establishment, by Pharisees, by by Sadducees, by teachers of the law, by the scribes. Not every one of them, but the majority, tore him down. They tear him down. They accuse him, they accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. This is Jesus. They're looking face to face with God, God the Son, and say, well, you're possessed by a demon. Are you kidding me? The accusations, the criticism, the ridicule that he endured, now that might not seem much, but think about it. Would you go through that? I'm going to go down there. I'm going to do everything I can for these people. I'm going to sacrifice everything I can for these people, and I'm going to let them beat up on me. And they do. They do. At first, it's just, the, you know, the, at first, no one knows what to make of Jesus, but then the religious establishment comes to their conclusion, this guy is a false prophet, he's bad news. And eventually, even the people turn on Jesus. Jesus is taken before Pontius Pilate. And the, the members of the Sanhedrin, they say, we, we need to deal with this man. He's trying to stir up a revolution, so you need to take care of him. And so Pilate says, fine, if you want this man punished, if he's done something bad. I'm not exactly sure what he's done, but if you think he's done something bad, I'll have him punished. And so Pilate has Jesus beaten within an inch of his life, flogged, whipped 39 times. And the Romans, they had this way, they, they determined that 40 was enough to kill somebody, so they stopped at 39. Did you realize that? And so they had him severely beaten, and Pilate says, fine, you were angry at this guy. I had him beat up for you, now you can take him back. And the members of the Sanhedrin said, no, it's not good enough. We don't want him beaten up, we want him killed. And so after he's endured that physical torture, then they have him crucified. They nail him to a cross with that crown of thorns pressed into his skull. They nail him to a cross, and while he's up there, Dying for our sins. Do you know what we did? We ridiculed him. It says they mocked him. They said, listen, if you're the son of God, just come on down off that cross and then we'll worship you. They teased him. And do you understand the might and the power of Jesus? He could have brought down a legion of angels and just wiped everybody out. Wiped them off the face of the earth. There's no limit to the power of Jesus. As he's dying there for our sins, as the people mock them, he prays for them, not against them. God, send down your angels, destroy these people who are mocking. He prays for them, and he dies on that cross. Peter tells us he bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we would die the sins, so that we would have the chance to be forgiven and receive eternal life. This is how Jesus loved us. Jesus is for us. Jesus is on our side. He is for us. He has our best interests in mind. He wants what's best for us. Before he was crucified, Jesus earned this nickname. He was called a friend of sinners. Yeah. And it was the Sanhedrin, the members of the religious establishment, that gave him that nickname. And it wasn't a compliment. This guy is a friend of sinners. He sits down and he eats with these people, these people who have a radically different worldview, radically different priorities. He sits down with them, the sinners. He he sat at a table and shared a meal with with people. They were were Jewish by their ethnicity, but they'd given up on God altogether, altogether given up on God. And he, he sat down with them. Wasn't offended by them. He'd say, listen, my name is Jesus, and I'm here, and I love you, but I just don't like you because I don't like what you're about. No. He sat with them. He ate with them. He loved them. He ate with the tax collectors, right? These were, these were men who had betrayed their own people to work for the enemy, to work for the enemy, the Roman government. They betrayed their own people. And none of us would fault Jesus if he would have walked up to him and said, listen, tax collectors, I don't like you because I don't like what you're doing. I love you because I'm Jesus, but I just don't like you guys." No! <laughs> he didn't do that. Because he was for the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus sat down with the prostitutes. And sometimes, if we read our Bibles, we just kind of gloss over these terms. Yeah, Jesus ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. do do Are you kidding me? With, with women who sold themselves to make money. He sat down with them. He didn't say to them, listen, your whole lifestyle is just so wrong and so offensive. I don't like what you're about. I don't like what you're doing. I mean, I love you because I have to because I'm Jesus, but I don't like you. No. He sat with them. He ate with them. They broke bread together because he loved them. He was for them. Jesus is for us. He is on our side. How can you be for someone if you don't like them? How can you be on their side? How can you love someone if you've given yourself permission to not like them? How can you love other people the way Jesus loved us if you have given yourself permission to be offended by their lifestyle? Throughout this series, I've made this claim that that we can't love other people if we're offended by them, and this is the type of thing I'm talking about. I've been struggling with this question for a while. Is it possible? Can you love someone without liking them? I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Listen, you're not going to be best friends with everybody, and that's okay. That's not the goal, right? You're not going to be best friends with everybody you encounter. That's, that's not the type of thing I'm talking about. The point here, what I'm trying to say, is that you need to stop giving yourself permission to not like people just because they're different from you. Stop giving yourself permission to not like people because their worldview and their values are Their priorities are radically different from yours. Now, I'm not saying all worldviews are equal. I'm not saying, hey, there's no such thing as right and wrong, so let's all get along. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, yes, people will be wrong. People will have wrong priorities. People will be sinners. But don't let that fact stop you from liking them. Because if you don't like them, how are you going to love them? This, This might be the entire point of this message series. We've given ourselves permission to not like people, thinking we can love them even if we don't like them. I don't think that we can. So that's where it starts. Let's stop giving ourselves permission to not like people because of their worldview. Let's not pretend they're not sinners. Yes, they're sinners. We're all sinners. It's not, it's not about that. Just stop giving ourselves permission to not like people. We have to be for Sinners. We have to be on their side. We have to have their best interest in mind. And we have to be willing to sacrifice for them because, as Jesus demonstrated, that's what love is. And we can't give ourselves permission to not like them. And we can't give ourselves permission to be annoyed by them. And we can't give ourselves permission to be angry with them or to be offended by them. We have to love them. And by them, I mean Everyone. When Jesus said love one another, he means everyone. We have to love other people. And we will be able to love one another the way that Jesus loved us when we are free from the burden of being offended. Once we give up our right to being offended, it's then that we are free to Let's pray on that. Jesus, you know the condition that we're in. You know where we struggle. You know the type of things that that annoy us, that we find to be obnoxious. Father God, at the same time, we acknowledge that none of us are perfect. We all... We all stumble. We're all sinners. We all have those things that that are weird about us. We all have those things that that we do that annoy others. And so, Father God, I just, I pray that you would eliminate excuses in our hearts. Don't don't allow us to give ourselves permission to be offended. Don't allow ourselves to, to stay angry, to give ourselves permission to stay angry. Father, I I just ask that you would destroy this myth that we can somehow not like people but still love them. Just destroy that myth in our hearts. And Jesus, we can't do this without you. The kind of love that you expressed for us, the kind of love that you have commanded us to share with one another, it's just impossible for us to to fake. It's impossible for us to manufacture. So we're going to need you, God. We're going to need your Holy Spirit express that type of love through us. So that's what we pray for, Jesus. Allow us to truly love others the way that you have loved us. We ask this all in your name, Jesus.